to Apply Yourself, the PathRise podcast. Every week, we'll have guests to give us insight on hiring and job seeking in tech. Guests include founders, engineers, designers, recruiters, product managers, and everything in between to hopefully leave you more informed and inspired in your job search. Today, our guest is Ruben Harris. Uh, Ruben is the co-founder and CEO of Career Karma, which is a community for people who are looking to break into the tech industry. Ruben, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, well, thank, thank you for having me. I'd love to just hear more about yourself and your experience, uh, maybe like the brief version of your journey to CEO at Career Karma. So a little bit about myself briefly. I am a Montessori student. So at the beginning of my life, I went two years to Montessori school uh, where I really learned a lot about independence, but also the importance of community. For those of you that aren't familiar with Montessori, there's mixed age classrooms, there's student choice of activity, uninterrupted blocks of time, and a, and a real focus on discovery. And that's actually how I discovered the cello, um, which is what I've been playing since I was four years old. Mm-hmm. That led me to become a professional musician all the way through college, where I did a double major in business administration and music. Mm-hmm. When I graduated, um, my cello teacher told me that um, if I wanted to become a successful artist, I needed to master business. He actually told me that before that. Um, and as an artist, you meet business people. And I met someone that told me that if I wanted to learn business in a short amount of time to do investment banking. Mm-hmm. So I taught myself financial modeling, became an investment banker, did that for three years where I met my first co-founder, Archer Meister, who's the chief technology officer of Career Karma. Mm-hmm. He had a twin brother working at Auto Trader at the time, and none of us knew how to code. So they decided to do boot camps. I moved to San Francisco. Uh, first to focus on sales and distribution. Mm -hmm. They moved after me and we wrote a story about it called Breaking Startups. Mm -hmm. That blog took off, turned into a podcast and a chatbot that pointed people to the teaching programs for the jobs that they want. Um, And then that turned into the app that we created today after we worked at five different startups, including Alt School, Honor, uh, Hustle, Funding Circle, Blipper, and AutoTrader. So yeah, that's that's a short version. So when you were in college, like as a business student and like studying the cello, you're like, I need to do this. And then you found your founders and you're like, in a few years, we're going to do something. I don't know exactly what it's going to be, but like I I got my team. Um, It actually happened after college. So like when I was in school, I was just focused on becoming the best musician in the world. I was a double major Mm -hmm. business administration and music. And I organized a lot of events. And when I got to Atlanta, I started my career in Chicago as an investment banker. Then I got to Atlanta, still organizing events. Um, and, and me and, and Archer hit it off because he also used to buy and sell contemporary art online through a website. And that was one of his businesses. Uh, but to your point, um, we didn't know what we wanted to do. We just were really good friends. Mm-hmm. And we knew that we wanted to start a business. And we realized that when we were in college, everybody wanted to do finance or consulting. Mm-hmm. But then... While we were working, the world had shifted where everybody wanted to go to tech because tech had taken over every industry. Mm-hmm. And across the street from the bank was something called Atlanta Tech Village. Mm-hmm. And so every Friday, we would go there for something called Startup Chowdown. And we realized that if we wanted to build a business, it had to have tech at its core. But most startups fail. So rather than just starting without knowing anything, we decided to take an investment banking type period of time, which is like one or three years, mm-hmm. and work in startups first to learn the game, mm-hmm. get skills, and then start 
a company on our own. Okay. So tell me more about that company. Why did you start Career Karma and what need is Career Karma filling in the market? I think the best companies are run by CEOs that either have the problem themselves or have lived through that problem. Mm -hmm. And throughout my entire life, I've had to reinvent myself uh, while still being who I am into multiple Mm -hmm. roles. So like, you know, I've been an artist. I was a party promoter. I was a studio musician. I worked in education, I worked in politics, I worked in healthcare, but every time I'm still who I am. And we've entered into a world where people aren't going to one school forever anymore, and they're not working for one company forever anymore. There's the average tenor in tech is one to three years, Mm -hmm. and people are going to often be doing multiple jobs in a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And so we realize the insights for career karma through our own lived experience. And we were actually doing what we're doing with Career Karma mm-hmm. manually yep. our entire lives since we've been in, in the tech space. Yeah, yeah. When I was trying to get into investment banking, I had to send out 1,900 emails at Crash Career Fairs to get my first job because I went to a school. 1,900? 1,900. I went to a school that nobody's ever heard of at mm-hmm. a 2.98 GPA. And I discovered a blog called Mergers and Inquisitions mm-hmm. and an online course called Breaking into Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And so... Similarly, um, I had to like find people that were already working inside of companies. I had to cold email them. I had to set up coffee meetings and do yep. all these different types of things that yep. people still do today for tech. Yeah. And after interviewing over 100 people on the Breaking Into Startups podcast that we launched in 2016 to share stories similar to ours, we realized that there was a huge need for this problem. And millions of people are working age, not making a living wage without college degrees, in addition to people with college degrees that are making a living wage. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we knew that boot camps were the fastest way to get a high paying job in tech through our own lived experience. Mm-hmm. And even though they're primarily focused on software engineering today, we see this model expanding to other skill sets especially now that college campuses are launching them yep. and we'll eventually be able to train the entire world and work with people like Pathrise to help people level up in the jobs as well. Yeah. So let's talk more about, about the job search. So at Pathrise, honestly, I'd say most students, it's, it doesn't have to be a student to, to be a part of Pathrise, but most of the, the fellows that we work with are university grads or maybe one year of experience. Uh, but we definitely do get boot camp grads that are in the program. I, I think like this month I've placed like three three people uh, in jobs that, that had nice. a boot camp background that I had been advising for a while. That's awesome. And I definitely noticed there are more barriers, I think, than people that come from more traditional backgrounds. But I will say like they all got... Like great jobs. Two of them are making 120k uh, in their first job, and that's like pretty on par with what a top tier CS grad would get at a university um, if they did really well and interviewed well. Yeah. So, um, but, but tell me more about like the job search yeah. and like what comes after the boot camp. And maybe like what people should be thinking about in terms of like what makes a successful job search. I think whether you have a boot camp background mm-hmm. or a self-taught background or a college degree background, well, let's ignore the college degree background for now. If you learn the skills outside of a college degree, the most difficult challenge that you're going to have is actually mm-hmm. getting the shot to demonstrate that you have the skills. Yep. Right. And so the tech industry mm-hmm. is very similar to the music industry, since that's my background. Like, it's, it's accepting of everybody. So it doesn't matter if you're old or young or you have a felony on your record. It doesn't matter. Like, they will take you. The problem is, is that 
it's hard to play your demo tape for the right A and R to get you signed. Right. Mm-hmm. So same, so same, same type of thing is like there's arguably more talented musicians that aren't signed to record labels than are currently signed to record labels. Yep. But the hardest time that they have is getting the shot. Similarly, there's arguably more talent that exists in the world that is not employed, especially the ones that didn't go to college yep. that haven't gotten the shot mm-hmm. that want to get the shot. Even in the Bay Area. Right. Like there's so many Bay Area natives that know that tech has taken over their cities and gentrifying them. And they want to take advantage of the opportunities, Mm -hmm. but they don't know how, right? So I think knowing what the path is, is one thing, right? Understanding that the job search is a sales process is another thing. Getting the skills to meet the requirements for the job is another thing. But I think most importantly, and what people rarely talk about at least from my perspective, it's not the technical or or soft skills. It's the psychological understanding of yourself. Mm -hmm. If you can't convince yourself that you're good, you're not going to be able to convince anybody else that you're good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you wouldn't hire you, nobody else will. Yeah. There's a thing that happens when someone starts to get on site more frequently and gets their first offer. Often they kill all their other interviews that come after that. Mm -hmm. They're like, wow, it took me so long to get this one offer. And all of a sudden, like I have like three offers, but it's because like they have this momentum and they believe in themselves and they know they can do it and they can just like play off of that, but it's hard to get there. So how do you help encourage people to like get to that point of being like, I don't need an offer to validate me. Like, I know that I can get this offer. I mean, you brought up momentum. You know, momentum is power, right? Momentum Mm -hmm. starts gradual, but once you have enough momentum, you're unstoppable, right? You know that you got the juice, right? You got the sauce. (laughs) So when you think about momentum, I think it's important to start off somewhere. And if you know yourself, you should be able to tell your story in a short way that gets the interviewer feeling good about you, but also confident Mm -hmm. in your skill set, right? Or like you've dropped enough to get them to be like, this person probably has the skills I need. So I'm going to have to do a quick gut check on that. Mm -hmm. And this person is somebody that I like, because at the end of the day, if you send a bunch of people that have the same skill set and they have the highest passing scores, what makes them different? The main thing that people are looking for Mm -hmm. after you pass the technicals, which is actually the minimum barrier, Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. do I want to work with this person for a long period of time, right? Mm -hmm. Do I want to be in the trenches with this person working through problems, right? Mm -hmm. Your best best friends come through struggle, right, and going through hard things together. And so the first thing that I focus on when people are getting to the job search is how to tell their story. Yep. And that takes a while. And so the the first thing that I think about is you tell someone a little bit about your background, what sparked you to get interested into that role, what you did to develop that interest, Mm -hmm. um, who you're speaking with today and why you're specifically talking to them. And if you could tell that in one to two minutes in the beginning, then they might grow you on some technicals. So obviously you want to be good at your technicals, but then your goal is actually to get them talking about themselves the entire time. And like have them smile and like mm-hmm. kind of like just talk about people like talking about themselves. And then 
at the end of the conversation, they'll feel that it was a great conversation, but they were talking the most versus you. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think we definitely see that. I tell people like if you're making it to onsite, like it's expensive for companies to have onsites, especially these like big, huge companies or also for startups. You're going to spend a whole day interviewing someplace. Uh, all those, those engineers could be doing other stuff, you know, um, like they're expensive. As a recruiter, when I bring somebody on site, it's because I believe and the hiring managers also likely believe that you have the technical skills. And when it's in the debrief, it might be like, I can't, I can't tell you how many times it's like, oh yeah, like they're okay. Like technically, like I think they like met the bar, but I've seen people that meet the bar technically, but don't get the job just because the hiring manager didn't feel like they like clicked with them or they didn't feel or they felt like they were arrogant or something like that versus the other way around, which I think people like automatically go to is like, oh, I'm not technically strong enough. But in reality, like I've seen it happen more often where it's somebody that's not technically strong enough, but they felt like they wanted to give them that shot, you know, like listen to their demo tape. You know what I mean? That happens a lot more than people think. Exactly. And I, th- I think that like a lot of people don't mock interview. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't don't practice their story. Mm-hmm. As a musician, I like to record myself and hear myself tell my story and play it back mm-hmm. and pretend that I'm the interviewer to see how it sounds. I focus on tone. I focus on smiling. I focus on nonverbal communication. I think as well, understanding the issue about not getting the shot, yep. even though companies have dropped the requirement for college degrees, it's still the biggest signal for like an ATS system. Mm-hmm. And you're probably not going to get the interview by applying on the website. Mm-hmm. Personally, I've never gotten a job in my entire life by applying to the website ever and in tech and outside of tech. And I think that like as an individual in this new world where you're not defined by your occupation, you are your own business. Mm-hmm. For me, CEO doesn't stand for chief executive officer. It stands for create every opportunity. And as an individual, you are the CEO of your own life mm-hmm. and you are in charge or empowered to create your own opportunities. You can't just apply and wait for somebody to respond. You need to make plays. And so once you have your story down and you're confident in your skills, I like to think about where I want to work, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? You also need to convince yourself that you're not junior at what you're currently doing, right? So like if I am a boot camp grad, but I lived my life as a uh, teacher, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then I am a 20-year education veteran that happens to know how to code, right? Mm-hmm. And I need to present myself that way, walk that way, think that way. And that has a lot of weight, especially if I'm applying to companies that are focused on education. Right. So you want to be strategic about where you want to work. Yep, yep. I, I often ask people, where do you want to work? And they'll be like, I don't know, anywhere that gets me a job and that pays a lot of money. But that is not a wise approach. You want to think deeply about where you want to go. That's aligned with your lived experience. That's aligned with the projects that you built while you were in your boot camp, because creating clones for websites is a great practice. Mm-hmm. But when you tell your story, you want to show why you learn how to code that's deeper than money and how your skills are solving problems in your own life and how you'll be able to solve problems at that company as well. And so I encourage people to create a list of companies, tier three, tier two, tier one, tier one being the highest one, mm-hmm. and then take the shot at the companies that you aren't as excited about and be comfortable with failure 
and get the feedback if you don't get the offer. Mm -hmm. If you get the offer, good. Learn how to negotiate and leverage to get more. But overall, as you do interviews with the bottom tier, you'll eventually get better and better until you, when you apply to your top tier ones, you're going to be a savage and you're going to dominate every single interview and just slam dunk everything. And for the people that you have, like, have been mentoring with this like tiered approach, how long is that list? Is it is it like 20 companies, 50 companies, 100 companies? It depends on the people. I encourage people to send five emails per day at least before breakfast. Mm-hmm. If you're a real hustler, that's like 20 per day or more. You know, I think like it really depends on how much you think that you can handle. Mm-hmm. But you want to treat finding a job like your job. Like your job search should be your nine to five. Mm-hmm. If you're applying only to one or five companies a week, then you're doing it wrong, mm-hmm. right? It's a numbers game, going back to sales, right? If it's 80% of results out of 20% of your efforts, so you want to apply to five, you only got one shot. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know? So it's essentially like the more at-bats that you take, then the more opportunity you have to get offers. And so, you know, you really want to treat it that way. Right now, Career Karma is not as focused on the job search right now. We're focused on getting people into coding boot camps yeah, yeah. Um, and helping them understand how to pass those interviews. Yeah. Do you feel like they loop back? Do you, do you feel like they're like, Ruben, like you helped me so much and I love my boot camp and it was amazing, but now I need a job. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, well, I, I do help those people. Uh-huh. Career Karma doesn't leave people alone after we get people into uh-huh, a boot camp. Uh-huh. Uh, they're still in squads during the boot camp. And they're still in squads after the boot camp. They're able to leverage the network and we still help them. That's just not what we've optimized for in the beginning of the year. Yeah, 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 yeah. But for the people that don't know what Career Karma does, you know, Career Karma matches people to go to coding boot camps and gives them support for the rest of their careers. Yep, yep. But I think that like, to your point, since we are focused on that position, since boot camps are three to 12 months, the people that finish their boot camps and are in the job search need guidance and I can only give so much yeah, at this current yeah, yeah. So I have to work with people like Pathrise to make sure that they have the guidance that they need. Yeah, yeah. For bootcamp grads in the job search, at Pathrise, we definitely know like your first job is really, really important. Like whatever you get, like you should try to optimize for like the best that you you can get. But tell me more about getting that first job or like the people that you worked with. What does it look like? I mean, I think sometimes there's a romanticizing of, yes, you're going to go to a boot camp and you're going to make six figures and all of that. And that's definitely possible and within the realm of possibility. But I don't even know if that's like necessarily the norm right now for bootcamp grads. Like what are you seeing in terms of first opportunities and like what's worth taking? And sometimes I've seen bootcamp grads that are like, okay, fine, I'll work for equity for six months. And then that's going to get me to the next step. I'd love to hear more about like what things look like after. I mean, I think that's definitely the norm, actually. I mean, I think last couple of weeks we helped somebody get a job making over $200,000 at Instacart. Another guy making about 150 at Tesla, and the other one's making about 120 at at Walmart Labs. So, I mean, it's definitely possible. But to your point, there's a bell curve with anything, right? It's like saying, mm-hmm. if I go to if I go to Y Combinator, then I'm going to be a billion dollar company. Like that's not how it works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like saying, if I go to Y Combinator, I'm going to raise X millions of dollars, right? It, it doesn't happen for everybody, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It's like no education institution can create 100% of an outcome that's in the six-figure range, mm-hmm. right? Maybe they can't. Like, you have to think about it like where the top performing people 
are going to get those jobs super fast. The people in the middle might get it a little bit later. And the people at the bottom, it takes them a while to get it. And they might be those people that you said that are in the struggling for equity and types of things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What I think people have wrong about boot camps and college and any institution that trains you to do something is that the school is charged with you getting the job. Like if you go to the school and they train you, then like it's on the school for you to get the job. Yes, the school will provide coaching. Yes, the school will help you. But at the end of the day, it's on you to put what you've been taught into motion mm -hmm. to get the job, right? If I don't listen to the guidance that I'm given by my partners at Y Combinator and I don't put it into practice, mm -hmm. I'm not raising the money. I'm not executing and building the organization to where it's supposed to be, right? So you cannot put the entire burden on the institution if you're not putting in the work yourself, right? If you are putting in the work yourself and you're doing a great job, then it either wasn't meant to be or wasn't the right time. If you are not putting in the work and doing your best and you aren't getting the results that you want, then you need to evaluate about what you're not doing to get better and see guidance from your boot camp and see guidance from your peers, and see guidance from your mentors to get to where you want to go. We got to take ownership about our own careers as well and understand that it's a collaborative effort. It's a team effort when it comes to building a career. Yeah. Also, I mean, I know like career karma, I think there's definitely over a hundred boot camps that like exist in like North America right now, yep. but it's not like you are recommending students for every, every boot camp that's out there. And there is also um, tiers or a bell curve when it comes to boot camps as well. And it seems like the ones that you're working with are like very highly vetted. Like, you know, you know what like their strengths, their weaknesses are. Yeah. I think to your point, the marketing of boot camps is you do this skill set, you're going to get a job making six figures. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's based off of supply and demand where there's like only a few people graduating from four-year universities, about 50,000 a year, and about thirty to 40,000 people graduating from boot camps and over half a million open jobs for computer science right now. Mm -hmm. And then five years, there's going to be 1.4 million open jobs and only 400,000 computer science graduates, which means a million people have to be trained either through boot camps or some mm -hmm. form of alternative. And so if you think about it math-wise, low supply, high demand, prices goes up. We live in the Bay Area. That's why it's so freaking expensive to live here, <laughs> right? It's low housing, mm -hmm. right? And so that is true. But if someone goes to a boot camp with that framing in their mind and they graduate and they don't immediately get a job in the first month, mm -hmm. then that does a lot of psychological damage to that individual when they're like, wait, am I not good enough? They see their other friends that are at the top of the bell curve getting the jobs faster. Wait, I was an imposter. Wait, mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. But what they don't understand is that Everybody has their own pace and you need to allocate another one to three months for the job search. Yeah. And it's the same thing with fundraising after Y Combinator. After Y Combinator, everybody doesn't raise the money that they mm -hmm. need for demo day mm -hmm. right after. It takes about one to three months as well mm -hmm. to raise the money. Yeah, Same yeah. I, uh, I wanted to go back to like what you were saying about like traditional education institutions. Let's say you go to a four-year college, you pay like all this money. You can choose to either go to your classes or not go to your classes. You can choose to do research with your professors or not do research with your professors. You can choose to like uh, get mentors. You can choose to like be involved. You can choose to do all of these things. And whether or not you make those choices, you're probably going to pay the same amount as somebody else. What I really like about Pathrise, but I think it's hard for sometimes students to understand, is 
as a mentor, I am like so invested in them. I want them to succeed because we only get paid if they succeed. But if they don't put the effort in or are not taking advantage of the resources and they're still paying, it's like, I wanted you to take advantage of all of those things. And I was trying to like make sure that you really took advantage of all of these things that I know will work. But I think it's still not normalized or people don't like really understand the like income sharing agreement model and that it's essentially like a risk sharing model. And we're saying, hey, we're going to take the risk that maybe you're you're not going to get a job, which no college, well, I guess Purdue University is the only one that has done that. And I think in terms of accountability, a lot of the boot camps that Career Karma recommends use income share agreements as well, at least like as an option. What do you think and like what are the the people that you're working with at Career Karma think about income share agreements and navigating like those sorts of conversations about how the industry is changing and how that changes incentives. I think um, income share agreements are the primary driver to not just the bootcamp space, but you're also seeing this actually grow mm-hmm. at colleges yep. as well. So Purdue is one of them, but you're going to see um, actually income share agreements. I, I know that the, they're focused on having them at a hundred colleges by the end of this year alone. So so it's actually a massive movement that's happening right now. Um, I think I actually put out a YouTube video about how income share agreements work. Um, but essentially, the way that I think about income share agreements is it's like a promise, like you said, where it says, hey, I believe in you and I believe in what I know how to teach. Mm-hmm. I promise I will get you a job above mm-hmm, a certain mm-hmm. salary. If you don't get a job, yep. you don't pay anything. If you do get a job, then the tuition comes out in your salary. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. income share agreements actually like are applicable to boot camps and universities. Mm-hmm. And we're not people that are saying like boot camps are the only way to go because we're we're actually mm-hmm, college mm-hmm. graduates, right? And I also put out another video talking about how I went to college and graduated, but most jobs that people get after college don't pay enough to justify the cost of tuition and they never end up paying it off. Mm-hmm. I know University of Chicago, for example, one year of undergrad is 80000 By the time you're done, you have 320000 in debt mm-hmm. across majors. That's insane, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So my thing is like, if you have the funding to go to college to do what you love in a career that does not pay over $50,000, when you get out of college, go for it. You know, I think for me personally, I was not ready for the workforce when I was in high school because I was distracted with life. And it takes a lot of maturity to pace yourself, accept the stupid rules we can't change while getting what we need at the same time. And college gave me that time to figure it out. I'm going to come back to income share agreements in a second, but I'm going to do something pro-college right now. Like college gave me permission to be young a little bit longer. Hmm. It also exposes you to things you can do in life that you never thought of because that wasn't your experience growing up. And the people you meet at different levels across subjects teach you a lot about life and people. And learning about people is probably one of the most important things that you could ever learn because at the end of the day, in this world of ones and knows, life is all about relationships. Mm-hmm. And you cannot get anything done on your own. It requires a team. Mm-hmm. So going back to income share agreements, I think um, income share agreements are the reckoning of student loans. I think there's a lot of conversation about student loan debt cancellation, mm-hmm. which I think is it's an important conversation but it does not address the root of the problem Mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. even if you cancel all student loans, you'll get right back to the same level of $1.6 trillion outstanding debt because we have not tied tuition to post-graduation salaries. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I think to your point, income share agreements are not the medicine that cures everything and it's the only option. I think loans and tuition up front are still 
options for other people. But I think that we're going to see the growth of this asset class in a major way, which is part of the reason why we brought on an ISA research fellow. and We'll get heavily more involved in that regard. So shout out to James Gallagher <laughs> and the, the research we're going to be dropping in that regard soon. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I, I mean, I'll also say like income share agreements are still very new, relatively, like not regulated by the government. Like there's bills and stuff that have been proposed. When Pathrise came out, I think there were maybe two companies in the history of Y Combinator that had used income share agreements as a part of their business model. And since then, and that was not that long ago, Mm -hmm. now it's well over seven companies that have come out. So I definitely don't think it's something that's going away like soon. I also think like companies like Pathrise and Career Karma and uh, Lambda School and like what our outcomes are and how we operate and scale is going to be really important to the future of what uh, income share agreements are going to be. Absolutely. It does not work without outcomes. <laughs> also, I'm going to say like there is potential for like bad actors to like do bad things with income share agreements. And when we're hiring people at Pathrise, I say that and we have like a really high bar in terms of why are you here? Like, you really, truly, truly have to have it in your heart that you want to help people, that you truly want to invest in others, that you truly want to see people grow because it could be dangerous if we had people that weren't aligned around that. And I feel so grateful. Like all of the pastorized advisors are like, they bleed for mentoring. That's why they're here. And I, I hope that Career Karma is like that too. And I think a lot of the companies that we associate with are also like on that page. But I do worry that that could happen in the future. So I do think the ISA researcher that you hired is probably going to be like important to like figuring that out as well. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think like it's rare to see an industry trying to self-regulate itself and like really work together with government, which I think we should. I mean, I think the fact that we always have this like confrontational relationship with government and it doesn't make any sense. Like, if, especially if you think about the space of workforce development, where, you know, American Job Corps is like this huge multi, multi-billion dollar program that's supposed to be helping with job training yep, yep. that's not connected to the jobs of the future. Yeah. And then most people in tech don't even know that it exists. And so nobody's communicating and it's operating in silos. But then we fight about issues that we actually are aligned on, where if we work together, we can do a lot of things, which is part of the reason why I like where we sit in career karma, because... Since we touched so many schools, so many organizations, so many government leaders, so many nonprofits, so many companies, so many individuals, we're able to work collaboratively to come up with a solution that prepares people for the fourth industrial revolution Mm -hmm. because it is not possible to do it without collaboration. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I wanted to touch on this like a little bit. Uh, You brought up like there being lots of talented musicians to fill like every possible musician role like there is. Also in tech, like you hear a lot like, oh, there just aren't enough. There aren't enough software engineers or there's not enough like qualified software engineers. I'd love to talk to you more about that and like what you're seeing. Because I I actually don't think it's about like there not being enough software engineers or enough people that are willing to go into software engineering. I think it's more about like giving people that shot or companies being invested in taking on new grad talent or entry level talent or like you know, not senior engineers. Like everybody wants to hire senior engineers and nobody wants to help train them. So if I think about what you're referring to as like what people commonly refer to as the pipeline problem, Mm -hmm. I think that like it comes down to how you define it. So the way that you defined it where like 
are there enough people mm-hmm. that want to become software engineers going after this field? Mm-hmm. And in that regard, we say, I say we do not have a pipeline problem. Are there enough people that have gone through the training that are available for the open jobs? Then the answer is like, yes, we do have a pipeline problem because like there are plenty of people that are software engineers that have gone through the space where there are, even if you hired every single software engineer that exists today, you still have open jobs, mm-hmm. right? So like th- that's just a math thing, right? There's like, there's not enough people coming through. But to your point, since massive open online courses have been introduced seven years ago, mm-hmm. there's over 100 million learners that have been trying to do these things with a 5 to 15% completion rate. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's, there's a lot of demand. There's hundreds of thousands of people trying to get to boot camps, mm-hmm. but less than 10% of them are getting in. So there's a lot of people that want to get in. They don't know how. A lot of times that they get rejected from a boot camp, mm-hmm. that's a psychological demotivator yeah. that makes them think that, that they're not possible and they don't try to do it again. Mm-hmm. It's not that they're not competent. It's just that they're not ready. They just need somebody to help them get ready and come back. It's like going back to the job search example. If I'm a boot camp grad and I have the skills to get into Google and I get rejected and I end up going to Facebook, Google will never know that. Yeah. And I mean, I would see that a lot at GitHub and all of this place. I'm like, you're, you're trying to tell me this person isn't qualified, but they also have offers from like these three other companies. And you're telling me that they're not a good enough engineer for, for GitHub. I say, I say like a lot of it is, I mean, the landscape has changed a lot and there's a lot more opportunities. But, you know, like when like Dev Bootcamp shut down, like a lot of things that they talked about back then is just like, oh, the market is saturated and like there just aren't enough like entry level jobs. It's not the same thing as when, when we first came out. But I also think I look at companies like Netflix, they've got the N in Fang, right? Mm -hmm. And they have like a very, very tiny, tiny internship program that they've been like playing around with. Mm -hmm. They've like played around with like a returnship. They don't do new grad recruiting at all. And they're like, we just want to hire senior engineers. And I can kind of get that like maybe as a startup or as like you're, you're growing like a little bit, but I think there comes a point where as a citizen of the tech ecosystem, you have a responsibility, I think, to be training people as part of this ecosystem and not just taking engineers from every other place. I don't know how they've like gone so long without like not doing that. But honestly, I I think it's irresponsible a little bit or definitely not very, I don't think it's being a good citizen to the, the tech ecosystem. Well, I think that what's going to happen is that you're inevitably going to see companies having to build talent in addition to buy talent because, again, there's not enough talent that exists for the open jobs. So, like, you can hold off on hiring and developing junior talent for as long as you want to or get proactive, but eventually you're going to have to get there. And you can see that with things like what Amazon do it. Mm-hmm. Corporate boot camps like Amazon Technical Academy are coming. If you haven't seen that, check it out. Amazon is investing $700 million to reskill 100,000 employees. And that's just the beginning. That's current talent that they have that have skills that are outdated. But like, if you want to continue growing your organization and building talent, you're going to have to start investing in that. So another trend outside of income share agreements, which we see very similar to like how bootcamps were in the beginning is apprenticeships. So like not everybody's doing apprenticeships. Like you said, they're like these small, tiny Mm -hmm. internship baby form things but they're going to grow, no doubt. If you look at what was happening in the 90s and in America in the first few industrial revolutions, like people got these jobs straight out of high school, 
you know, and they were trained mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. the needs of the workforce. And they went straight into the job. That's where we're going to. Mm-hmm. Like these things go in cycles. Mm-hmm. And I think that like Netflix is a great company, just like a lot of other companies. Yeah, yeah. But bootcamp grads need to understand that or just people in general from college or whatever need to understand that the companies that are hot that you see in the media aren't the only companies. There's millions of companies out here. SAP alone, we had them do an AAM, uh, Ask Me Anything for Career Comma. They alone hired 30,000 software engineers. Yep. That's one company. That's the entire bootcamp space pretty much, right? So it's like there's a lot of opportunities you got to look. And what I think we suffer from in college and in boot camps is that the job search training and the career center and the career coach preparation is there, but it hasn't caught up. And so it's not to take shots at career centers and my friends that are running career centers at colleges, but we got to do better. And it's a shame when someone has graduated from a computer science program and they've never done a whiteboarding interview. It doesn't make any sense. Or I don't know, we'll meet people that are that like, you know, they graduated CS degrees and they're like, I guess I'll just still work at Wendy's. Yeah. Like I applied to 30 or so places. It just didn't work out, you know? And it's just like, yeah. like, are you kidding yeah, me? Pretty wild. <laughs> like, um, like there, there's so much more out there or like understanding, like maybe if you move from where you're living right now, like you could double, sometimes triple like your income if that's what's important to you or if that's going to create some sort of social mobility or whatever, like every person's different. But sometimes I, I feel like students, like they just don't know what, what they don't know. You also brought up the fact that like you apply to 30, 40 companies and then you stop and you're yeah. like, all right, I'm going to work with Taco Bell. But yeah. the biggest differentiator with most people is not necessarily their skill sets or even their soft skills or whatever in the way they tell their stories. It's the fact that they didn't quit. And they kept searching. Yeah. Right. Yes, Inclu- yeah, inclu- yeah, including yeah. the big billion dollar companies, like the billionaires that I've met that have run amazing yeah. companies that, that you all read about today. It's not that they are rocket scientists. It's that they just had. No, no, no. They never stop. I do say that to a lot of people. Hey, like the people that work at Google or like the new grads that I would hire at Google. Oh, I like, I used to be a Google recruiter, by the way, but I'm like, they're not so different from you. Yeah. There's luck in the process. There's all of this stuff, but I'm telling you, like I've built this relationship with you over, over many months. I know your profile. I know your story. I know what you can do technically. I can tell you that like, you're there, you're not so different from them. And a lot of times it's like when people don't go to, you know, like Stanford, Berkeley, you know, Waterloo, like all, like all of those colleges. And like a lot of people need to hear that. And I don't say that to everybody, but I do say that to a lot of people because it's true. Like, I think people think that they're just these algorithmic, like data structure, like geniuses that like solve leak code problems in in four minutes and and like everything's easy for them but uh, that's not the average engineer that gets hired at, at Google like entry level you know and it's hard to get a job at Google it's very 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 hard but they're not so different from you mm-hmm. my ideal fellow like that I love working with is a fellow that it doesn't matter like where they're at technically but like they work at it every week and like in three months they are a lot better than they were three months ago. You know, that's my ideal. And like, that's what makes me happy because I know that person will get like the, the optimal job and I'm there like pushing them and, and giving them advice and like helping to make them better. But if they have that that fire of like, it's okay, there's, there's peaks and valleys through this job search, but I'm going to, I'm going to stick with it and I'm going to be better than I was last week. 
Like that person, I know, I know they're going to be okay. Yeah. I mean, if you get to a practice of like asking for feedback after an interview or even during the interview, yep. you might've thought that the interview is so good. And at the end of the conversation, but look, I like you. I know you like me on um, this felt great. Yep. Do you have any hesitations with someone with my background? Yep. And then you get them to share that right then. Don't just be like, thank you for the feedback. Like literally address it. Mm-hmm and handle the objections in the middle of the conversation and then close, right? Like that's something I learned from my rejection when, when I tried to interview at Zenefits back in the day when I first moved to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. They, 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 I, I crushed the interview mm-hmm. and I asked them if they had hesitations, which was the right thing. And they said they were concerned about me having a cello background and, and like why I was interested in insurance or something like that. Hmm. And I just like left it alone. And they just picked a random thing yeah. when I asked for feedback later. Yeah. They wanted to see how I would handle the objection and say something like, I can see how you came to that conclusion. Um, the way that I think about it is this, and I should have addressed it right there. Mm. But a lot of people don't know how to do that. They're not comfortable handling yeah, objections. Yeah, yeah. They're not comfortable asking for feedback. And it's a very kind of aggressive question to just ask that and just get all the all the crap out on the table that you want to talk about. But I can't help you if I don't know what the problems are. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. You got to ask those questions. We're very big on like interview reflections. Like after someone does an interview, it's like, okay, like let's sit down. Like what questions did they ask you? But it's also like, how did they respond to your answers? Like were there things that they picked up on or didn't pick up on? Because then like we can refine your story from that. If like you talk about your, you know, doing first robotics and being interested in robotics and like you've done two interviews, no one cares. Maybe that shouldn't be like the center of your story, right? Or maybe you need Mm -hmm. to be looking at different companies. But if things aren't like hitting uh, the way that you you think it should, or like people aren't aren't engaging with you in the way that you expect, revisit iterative process. You know, like in tech, that's what we do. Like, come back, let's make it a little bit better, and then let's try it again. And then, like, let's get more information and let's try it again. Exactly. I think reflection is super important, right? Because my mom says, you know, if you always do what you always done, you always get what you always got, right? Even if what you're doing gets you to a certain level, if you want to get to the next level, you can't even do what you did to get to that level. It's like, all right, we hit a big milestone this month. And if you want to keep hitting that same milestone, keep doing what you just did. But you literally got to break your entire process and do something new if you want to grow. Yeah. Like it's like doing the same workouts every day. You're not going to get your muscles bigger if you don't keep you know, switching mm-hmm. it up and taking it to the mm-hmm. next level. You know? Pathfinder is really big on cold outreach and like cold emails and, uh, you know, building we have like a few frameworks I, I like to use, like, a, you know, board of directors, which goes back to like, hey, you're you're a CEO. Like, who do you want on your board of directors? Like, who are you trying to recruit? I also like the Mario Kart Ghost, which is like, you know, like, who's right in front of you? Who's got that high score right in front of you? But like, you can get there. I like that. That's dope. <laughs> I have the Mario Kart Ghost. That's a good one. What would be your advice? I mean, 1,900 cold emails. Just some tips that I can, like for people in the community, like best practices in terms of like getting a response to a cold email or dealing with no response from cold email, which I think I I deal with a lot with the fellows that we work with. They're like, oh, but they didn't respond to me. Like, how do you get someone to respond to a cold email or how should you be thinking about cold email responses? So when I got my first job, the lady that created the job for me at all school essentially told me that she was at an event and somebody told her that they read my first blog post where I talked about personal board of directors and they said, Ruben is one of the most networked people that I've ever met. And then she came to me and said, I was so upset when they said that because 
I don't want you to be known for that. I want you to be known as someone that cares about people and you help them become great. And because of that, you are one of the most connected people in the world. And so what that got me thinking about is like another mentor of mine, his name is on Justin Rosenstein, who's at Asana. Mm -hmm. And essentially I told him about the emotional bank account, which was like, oh, if I, if I do nice things for people, and I need to keep doing that because yep. whenever I make a withdrawal, I'll never mm -hmm. be in a deficit. But he was like, well, that's a cool framework, but uh -huh, that's a uh -huh. transactional relationship. You don't mm -hmm. want to have transactional relationships. So that essentially turned me into someone that really focuses on building personal connections with people mm -hmm. versus just networking with them. Mm -hmm. and so whenever I send a cold email to someone, I always try to write the opening line, tying something personal to them, mm -hmm. to me. So for example, when I sent a cold email to Jeff Lewis, who was at Founders Fund at the time, who now runs Bedrock Capital, uh, before I moved to San Francisco, I said something like, hi, Jeff, it's always nice to connect with other people that have roots in Canada. Right? Mm -hmm. Did I go to Canada? Like, was I born in Canada? No. Like, the way that I spun it up was I went to school. I was working at an investment bank called Bank of Montreal that has ties to Canada. One of my first teleperformances performances uh -huh. was in Montreal uh -huh. and all these other things. Like, I kind of finessed it, but at the same time, like, that's going to catch somebody's attention versus like, hi, I'm a new grad from this boot camp to this and that. It's like something personal. So like, if uh -huh, let's say uh -huh. that he was a cellist, I'll be like something similar, like yeah, connect yeah. on a cello. That's different. You have to connect on a personal mm -hmm, level mm -hmm. in a way that's different. The other thing that I like to do when I'm sending a cold email is I want to study news mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. their organization, right? So if their organization just raised some funding, usually they'll include the mm -hmm. things that they're focused on, mm -hmm. the things that they're struggling with. So in the message, I will say something that either shows that I can add value by helping them with their growth plans or filling a need or solving problems that they're currently facing indirectly. Mm -hmm. But my focus is normally not to get an interview. My focus is to just grab a coffee meeting in some kind of informal way mm -hmm. to learn more about them. And especially if they did a podcast, like a good secret for people is like, if people do podcasts, they like to feel like celebrities and they <laughs> kind of have like an ego a little bit. So just be like, yo, I really love hearing your podcast episode. This is what jumped out to me. And because it resonated with me in this way, I would love to like talk to you about that in some kind of way. Mm -hmm. The pick your brain thing doesn't really work very well, but if you're able to connect on a personal level and stroke somebody's ego properly, um, usually you can get the meetings. And when I was sending five code emails a day, I would get anywhere mm -hmm. from three to four responses at a time. Um, so like anywhere from 60, 80% of response yeah. because I personalized it that way. And I know that our fellows would ask me this, like what, what are your subject lines? Um, it really depends. Like sometimes my subject line would be like coffee meeting. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it would be, something related to what they said in the in the news that I read. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Sometimes it would be related to something in their personal background. Like let's say that they, if you look at their LinkedIn or their resume and their interests and see the things that they care about, like cliff diving or mm -hmm. a chess club or whatever, something about that, that you know that they're super passionate about that people would rarely know. Yeah. Sometimes whenever you're doing due diligence, it feels like you're a little creepy because you're like, you know everything about their background and you connect and you're like, dang, how the hell did you know that I grew up in this area? Blah, blah, blah. Um, but my most popular one is just coffee meeting, to be honest with you. Uh -huh, uh -huh. It's like, it's, super, it's pretty, pretty, pretty easy to get that. Yeah. But like for fundraising, it's different because I did a lot of cold emails for fundraising, mm -hmm. um, for DM. 
I did a lot of DMs on Twitter yeah, as yeah, well. So yeah. don't sleep on the power of Twitter. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, for I, sure. I, I've actually raised hundreds of thousands of dollars through DMs on Twitter. Nice. Um, so yeah, I think those are those are the main things that I would think about. The other thing that I would do too is, like you said, you and I have fifty mutual connections. Yeah. Right. So let's say that I didn't get a warm intro from somebody, mm -hmm. but I know somebody that knows you that has told me good things yeah. about you. Yeah. I'll say something like, "Hi, Quinn." I heard a really great things about you from Michelle and, and notice blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right. It's like a quasi warm intro. It's mm -hmm. like a lukewarm mm -hmm. intro mm -hmm. that you can like use as kindling to, to bark a fire. Yep. Like when in our second blog post, my co-founder Timor, he called emailed Max Levchin mm -hmm. and he made a tie to the fact that he grew up in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Right. You can take a cold email and make it warm by the research that you do. Yeah. I, I really love talking to you, Ruben. Likewise. We're almost <laughs> up on, on time. So, uh, but we do do this part where we do like a fire round where it's really quick answers to, to questions just to get to know you a little bit better. I know we touched on the cello stuff a little bit. So I usually ask people like favorite song, but I'd love to know like favorite composer and then maybe, maybe also like favorite like classical composer and then maybe like favorite like more modern musician. Yeah. So favorite composer is probably Rachmaninoff. Mm -hmm. My favorite symphony piece, I actually like the Dvorak Concerto. I know it's like not a pure symphony piece because it's a cello solo, but I like the Dvorak Concerto a lot. Mm -hmm. If it's not a cello feature, it'll be the Rachmaninoff piano ones. So I think those are really good. From a modern perspective, I would say the song that I'm listening to a lot is... Um, Everything mm -hmm, mm -hmm. by Nas. I think that's a really good song. Mm -hmm. But I have a bunch of playlists, man. There's another song called Help by Four that I really like a lot. P-H-O-R. Yeah. That's really nice. If you go to my Spotify playlist, I have a whole YC Focus music playlist. Yeah. I have a whole Demo Day playlist. And I'm also really into Afrobeats right now. I imagine you like, you know, right before breakfast, sending your five cold emails <laughs> with your playlist, like mm -hmm. maybe sometimes cello, <laughs> maybe sometimes some Nas. <laughs> the song that I played before I walked up to the demo day stage to, to pitch was um, How Did I Get Here mm -hmm. by Offset, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is pretty good. Yeah. I like that one a lot. And and I mean, you're pretty plugged into the like startup community and the, like the tech scene. Do you have a, like a favorite app or maybe a favorite tech company that you're like, yeah? I mean, aside from Career Karma, um, that you're like, I'm cool with what they're doing. Um, I really like uh, Duolingo uh -huh, a lot. Uh -huh. I think what Duolingo is doing is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I like a, another app called Fabulous. Mm -hmm. I think Fabulous is doing a lot of things around like habit building mm -hmm. um, and helping people. Um, with their life. I like shine text a lot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I like calm. I like headspace. I like things that are really focused on psychology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm personal. Um, I, like of, I, like, yeah, I like a lot of the workout apps. I like things like Noom. Uh -huh. I think things like that are really cool. Um, I try to focus on, on like the apps that aren't as popular mm -hmm. that, that people are doing. Um, I like to focus on things that are overlooked. Yep. Um, I do like, I like Scali a lot. Scali's um, helps people find mm -hmm. scholarships that are hard to find. They've generated over a hundred million in scholarships for people. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. a really cool app. Yeah. A um, little known, I don't think a lot of people know this about me, but like I like raised $50,000 in outside scholarships for college. That's amazing. That, that's how I yeah. learned the hustle. Like that's how I learned. It was just like, I'm like, whoa, I can write a really good essay and like put a week of effort into it. And they're going to give me $5,000? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Like, 
I'm not working at the Gap. Like, I'm going to be writing semester and see you guys later. <laughs> Exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, and wow. you sound like a busy guy, but do you have a favorite TV show? Yeah, so a show that I've watched for the first time recently, I'm on the mm-hmm, last season mm-hmm, now, mm-hmm. is The Wire, actually. The Wire is pretty amazing. Everybody kept telling me it was the most amazing yeah. show on television. The other show that I'm, I've been paying attention to is called Queen of the South, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which yeah. I think is pretty cool, too. Yeah, yeah. And um, I know, like, you've been living in the Bay Area for a while, right? Yeah. What's your favorite part about living in the Bay? It's a good question. I like the way think people think big. There's no dumb idea. People are willing to fund anything if you pitch the right person. What I think is awesome. I feel like living here, you're 20 years ahead of everything else that's going on. Yeah. And there's people from all kinds of walks of life. What I would say, though, that's also sad is that, like, at the heart of San Francisco is the Tenderloin, right? And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I used to work there. You are forced to make a decision mm-hmm. whether that is you are going to acknowledge the hypocrisy mm-hmm. and the socioeconomic diversity where like there's a big homelessness problem here and you can choose to step over it or you can do something about it. And I think that is sad, but it's also beautiful yeah, yeah. because a lot of times our poor and our people that are disenfranchised are tossed to the outskirts and we don't see them and we ignore them. Mm-hmm. But here you have to see it in full view. Mm-hmm. And it's all of its ugliness. Yeah. And it's up to us to decide what we're going to do about it. Yeah. And frankly, it's not just us deciding on our own. What I think is interesting to be about San Francisco is the way we know how to grow things very quickly from a technology perspective. But what shocks me is whenever we want to address issues, you know how people talk about talking to users, how are we going to address homelessness if we never talk to the people that are homeless to understand what they need and what they want, right? How are we going to address workforce development if we never talk to them about what they need and what they want? And so I think that like, you can't help people if you're not talking to them directly. And then once we do that, then we create solutions to kind of go from there. Yeah. So those are all of my fire rounds. Usually it goes a little bit faster, but you're thoughtful. No, 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 no. (laughs) You said things that had to be said. So I think that that's great. I kind of wanted to ask you if there was one person that hadn't responded to a cold email to you. Oh, man. Like one, one, but only one. Because I asked you lots of questions and you gave me more than one for every single one. One person that hasn't responded to your cold email in history that you're, you're waiting for that response. Oh my gosh. That's such a, that's a heavy one. Um, <laughs> first person that comes to your head. This you fire many, the first, the first person that I thought about was um, Elon Musk. <laughs> all right. All right. Elon Ruben's waiting for yeah. you. <laughs> I, yeah, I heard a, I a real funny story about Elon Musk. I can't say it on the, on the podcast, but mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, t- mm-hmm. I'll tell you. All right, all right, fine, I'll say it. I saw like some forums, a woman was like, I did an interview at this company and the CEO was sleeping under the desk and I just thought that was so rude. And I was like, hell no, I'm not working at this company. And um, it was it was Elon Musk. And it was it was like the company like before <laughs> PayPal or whatever. They sold it like a few months later for like millions of dollars. And she's like, yeah, maybe I should have. But maybe not. No, like whatever. I showed up for the interview on time. You should have been there. 
That's probably my favorite question that I've been asked. I like that. One. I'm gonna start using that question. That's a good question. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> Do you want to take a moment to just like say anything else that we didn't cover about career karma? Very simply, career karma is a marketplace that matches people to job training programs starting with coding boot camps. Um, so for an individual, they can download the app and get matched to a program and find other people like them that can help them get into it and find a job and a few clicks. And then for the schools, we've also built software so that they can handle the volume of people that are going through through the process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you want to see the type of energy that's in Career Karma, you could go to Twitter yeah. and look up the 21-day CK Challenge hashtag, and you'll see thousands of tweets there from individuals. Yeah. Um, if you are a school that wants to work with us, um, let us know. Yeah, yeah. If you want to learn how to code, just hit us up. And then if you are in Career Karma now and you're looking for help with the job search, holler at our friends at Pathros. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you everyone for listening. I just wanted to take a moment to briefly talk about our fellowship program at Pathrise. Yeah. Uh, if you're a student or a new grad interested working in software engineering, product design, or marketing, our Career Accelerator program provides personalized one-on-one technical interview prep and career mentorship with advisors like myself to help you get through all of your interviews and land the absolute best job possible. If you're interested in learning more and potentially checking out our next cohort, check out pathrise.com we'd love to hear from you until next time thank you so much ruben awesome thank you for having me